I've heard of uh, preachers preaching their hearts out. Uh, I preached my voice out, so. That's more common. Yes. All right. Yeah, you might have noticed uh, a lot of things are getting done around here. We have got the new entry ready done, and the stucco pillars are done, and the colors are being chosen for painting, and they're looking at doing something with the rock, and that's not a tomb out in the front. That's going to be where the, uh, that'll be where the sign, the new sign is going. So uh, things are coming along. Very grateful to our beautification team that's been working on all of those details. And so uh, what a blessing that is. Uh, as most of you know, I was uh, losing my voice at the end of the first time. I'm going to try not to be quite as animated. Uh, I'll be more of the, maybe the Jonathan Edwards monotone for you this time. You can pray for me because I'm supposed to go to a Christmas party this afternoon and uh, they want me to lead music, so I'm <clears throat> not sure what's going to happen with all of that. My hot water's coming up, even now? No, you're fine. I could say run, but you could say I am running. Yes, okay. Mm. Thank you. Uh, so we find ourselves... Uh, having completed the book of Jude, and we are uh, kind of in between a lot of things here because we have next week is our kind of our beginning of our celebration for Christmas, and we'll have our, as I said, a candlelight service message in the first hour that will be connected to our candlelight service for the second hour. And then we have, uh, and there's no, uh, of course, Bible study hour then. On the 25th, we'll have just our... Um, Christmas service on Christmas Day. On New Year's, we will have uh, our service followed by a pot providence. You can bring all your leftovers on the first. Uh, we figured, the leadership figured, what are you going to do if we send you home? You're just going to go home and eat food on the first anyway, so might as well eat it all together and then send you on your way. So that'll be on the first, um, and it will be in the bulletin. Uh, if you recall, at our business meeting, we presented to the congregation some uh, revisions to our constitution and bylaws and we have to wait three months before we can affirm those so on january 8th we'll have a kind of a devotional for the first part of the second hour and then the le then the membership will be asked to stay and to affirm the uh, changes to the constitution and bylaws so if you're like wait that was a while ago <clears throat> you can uh, go on the website and look at those revisions that are up there for you and uh, so that'll be on the 8th of january and then uh, we're beginning a new series. We were going to do Romans, but because we're in this Jude uh, kind of vein here, uh, we're going to go and pick up the book of Second Peter. Second uh, Peter is, by and large, the positive side of Jude. Jude's all about apostasy. Second Peter will talk about that, but he also includes some more positive themes. And so we'll pick that up, and then uh, later on in the late spring, uh, we'll start picking up the book of Romans. For our second hour, beginning halfway through January, beginning on the 15th, uh, Phil is going to do a series on Ruth for three Sundays uh, to take us through January. That'll be the Bible study hour. And then I'll do a series through February, and then uh, our elder, uh, our other elder, Brett, will be doing a series in Jonah in March for the second hour. So we'll, we'll see a lot of, of uh, opportunities there. So that's just a little bit of what's going on, and uh, we're going to, this morning then, just kind of 
we had this gap to fill, and that's not a big deal for me because it's this preach, pray, or die, and there's plenty of uh, things to talk about with the Word of God. But I'd like to speak to you uh, this morning on the topic of the will of God and the peace of God and how those two things relate or do they relate. So we're going to look at the will of God and the peace of God. And to do this, I'd have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we're not going to do a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, exegetical message on this, but we're going to talk about this subject. I'll introduce it here in just a moment. Um, because of the way my day went yesterday, I didn't have a PowerPoint put together for this. That means we have to do this the old-fashioned way. You're going to have to turn in your Bibles to look at the verses, and I'm going to have to be patient while I uh, let you turn in your Bibles because one of the things I use so much Scripture, I, uh, the reason why I put them up there is so you can know right what Scriptures I'm going to, and we don't have the hesitations, but... Uh, Anyway, with all that said, we're going to look at uh, Philippians. We'll begin with Philippians 4, very familiar verses, verses 4 through 7. And uh, we're going to use these verses to address, again, this topic of the will of God and the peace of God. So uh, if you would please stand with me as I read these verses. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon our time together as we consider this topic. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and allow us to uh, seek to be very accurate when we apply the will of God and the peace of God to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, so far I've told you we're going to talk about the will of God and the peace of God, but I want to do that with a very specific thought in mind because I hear Christians say things sometimes that, well, when we think about it, they're not necessarily biblical, and so we want to make sure that we are biblical. So if we're addressing the will of God and the peace of God, what, what connection am, am I trying to make? And I would say this, is the Christian to determine the will of God by whether or not he has peace about his decision? Should we be making our decisions based upon the idea that, uh, well, I have I have what I'm saying is the peace of God about the decision that I've made. Have you heard that one before, by the way? Christians can often justify decisions that they make by saying something along the lines, I have peace about it. Have you heard that one? Probably all of us are guilty of saying that. Well, I have peace about the decision. I've had people come to me and, and say, um, Pastor, uh, we've decided to, to leave the church, and I've prayed about it, and I have, I have peace. God's given me peace about it. And I, I start wondering about those kinds of things. I ask, is that a, a cop-out to say, oh, I have peace about the decision? Well, let me ask you this question and consider it carefully. Is what we describe as the peace of God subjective? Is the peace of God something subjective? Is the peace of God 
some abstract feeling, some feel-good notion, or is the peace of God actually something very specific, objective, and concrete? Of course, I would argue that it's the latter. It's very objective, and it's very concrete. Peace, for many in the church, is one of those Christianese terms that is sometimes used in the context of decision-making as a test for determining the will of God. I wrestle with this, and I pray about it, and if I have a sense of peace, then it must be that this is from God, and that's kind of the way the argument goes. I have peace about this or that, and he means by that that he's taken the, that particular thing that he's taken to the Lord as God's will for them, for him. Every Christian I've gotten to know over any length of time, no matter how or where he comes from, seems to have that universal catchphrase in common, peace sometimes being used more as a barometer uh, to determine the right thing to do in a situation. As long as it makes me feel good, then it must be from God. If it makes me feel bad, it must not be from God. Now, many of us have been around the block a while know that that's not always the case, but we're going to talk about this anyway. Uh, peace is not a barometer. Many go so far as to say God has given me a real peace about it. I've heard, have you heard that one? God's given me a real peace about this one. And I want to ask the question, does God ever give a fake peace? Does he give a false peace? You have to add the word real in front of it. In my Christian experience, I've, I, I've sometimes taken to use the, the idea of a peace barometer to aid in decision-making in the past, but now I should say I, I used to do that. I don't do it anymore because, well, I don't have peace about it, so I don't do it. Well, let me be clear. As Christians, when we say that we have peace, we need to know exactly what we're meaning when we're saying that biblically. When we say that we have peace about something, it is not to be used as a term to say we feel good about something, that we feel uh, that we have a good feeling about it or that there is the absence of any emotional conflict about the matter anymore. Some Christians refer to a supernatural peace, taking their cue from the passage that I just read from Philippians 4.7. Doesn't it sound like this? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Is that talking about if the, the, the good feelings of God will guard me? Or is it talking about something more specific and concrete? It is indeed a comforting passage, but one that's mistakenly used by some to, to say, I use that feeling to determine God's will. This is a mistake because scripture never gives us instruction to use our sense of peace as a barometer for determining the will of God. What does scripture offer us as aiding us in determining God's will? It's conviction of the word of God. It is the word of God as revealed, conviction based upon the revealed will of God. Peace may be a byproduct of what you have already come to know it's true from the word of God, but it is not that which we use to determine the will of God. Well, how do we get or have peace? Peace from a biblical view is always to be associated first with this, 
we have peace with God. It is really a reference to what God has done for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 5.1, you're familiar, therefore, having been justified by faith, having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he paid the price for our sin, knowing that he suffered, he bled, and he died as the punishment for our sin in our place, because of what he has done, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the idea here <coughs> is that Paul is speaking concretely of something. Before faith, we are at enmity with God. We are in rebellion with God. We don't like God telling us what to do. We have a bent towards sin, and all of that is erased by the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And because of Jesus... God is no longer in conflict with those who have received Christ as Savior and Lord. So when we say we have peace with God, we are actually saying we are at peace with God. We are no longer in a battle with God. We are no longer at war with God. We are no longer enemies of God, deserving God's judgment and condemnation. So that's the first aspect of peace with God. Secondly, second, biblical peace can be a lack of the internal conflict, or perhaps we shall say there's no in internal enmity with ourselves about something. I love the way the Amplified Bible defines it. I know you can't write this down, so just listen. The, the Amplified Bible defines peace this way. Perfect well-being, all necessary good, all spiritual prosperity, and freedom from all fears and agitation, agitating passions and moral conflicts. Now I'd say, I know how you're going to keep up with all that because it's not up on the screen. But in those cases, this kind of peace does not proceed or coincide with a decision about something. It's what you have in Christ. It's just what's been given to you. It has nothing to do with your decision other than if you want to somehow say, I've decided to follow Jesus, which we know we haven't actually done because Jesus decided to choose us first, right? But this idea that it is not, uh, that peace isn't something that uh, we are to use to aid our decision, it's, it's something that is already ours because of who he is. We'll describe this in a moment. Take a look at the book of uh, Philippians here in the context in which Paul uh, we looked at this verse, which Paul was saying almost in passing when he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And I want to ask you, was Paul without uh, uh, conflict? Was, we, is he, was he without uh, uh, agitation in his soul when he said these things? Uh, let's just think about this for a moment. Paul wrote this epistle while imprisoned in Rome. He was awaiting judgment from Caesar concerning his evangelistic outreaches, uh, his activities in speaking of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The equivalent, the, what he was doing was the equivalent of a charge of political treason because he's proclaiming someone else Lord rather than Caesar. And so he was sitting in a cell wondering if he was going to die. Now we can say, did he have peace? We would say yes, because he knew what God had promised him. But did he make his decisions to preach the gospel based on whether or not he would have that kind of 
of peace or did he have a peace about it? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. The peace, uh, Paul had peace about what he was doing, about what he would suffer because he had already made a decision in advance that it was right for him to set his face towards something that wasn't going to bring him uh, peaceful, easy feelings. It was going to bring him nothing but continued conflict. So often we think about making a decision, what's the will of God? Well, what's the easiest path? And yet Paul doesn't ask what's the easiest path. He asks the question of himself, what does God call me to do? And whether that brings a, uh, uh, an easy path or it's a difficult path, that's not what I will use to determine the will of God. How many of us would have peace with that kind of decision? Paul's imprisonment is really fascinating if you think about it because he deliberately set out on a mission that he knew beforehand was going to cause him conflict. It was going to get him arrested. It could potentially kill him. Let that sink in. Paul saying along the lines, I think I'll rest going to jail and even being executed for preaching Christ. Yes, I have peace about that. Makes me feel really good that I'm going to do all of these things. Paul's imprisonment, though, was no accident. He intentionally worked in such a way as to actually keep himself in Roman custody after he was arrested because it afforded him so many other opportunities. During Paul's time in Ephesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well that if he preached Jesus while there, and Paul being Paul, he could not avoid it, he would be confronted, he would be arrested. Look carefully with me if you turn to Acts chapter 20. Turn to Acts chapter 20. And I want you to see something that Paul's decisions were not governed by whether or not it made him feel good. It was rather about what God had called him to do. And so in Acts chapter 20, as he's giving his farewell address to the, the Ephesian elders, beginning in verse 22, I'd have you note what Paul says. Acts 20, beginning in verse 22. Paul writes, or Paul says, And now behold, now note this word, bound by the Spirit, not necessarily a positive term to be bound. I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Do you feel good about that? Is that something that makes you feel good? But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Notice the phrase bound, literally constrained, tied up by the Spirit. This is Paul's way of saying, I'm not really sure if I like the idea, if it's making me feel good. But God is moving me in a direction. He has revealed it to me by his spirit. And so regardless of my personal feelings, this is what I'm going to do. His decision isn't based upon that peaceful, easy feeling, but what God has commanded him to do. Now, does that sound like Paul used peace to make his decision concerning the will of God? Not a peace that says peaceful, easy feeling. 
Not at all. Paul did not need supernatural peace, as it were, for the decision-making process. What did he use? He used conviction, biblical conviction. What does God's word say? What has God communicated to me by which I will now make a decision, regardless of it, if it seems like it's the best thing from my perspective? Upon his arrival in Jerusalem, Paul attempted to appease an angry mob of Jews that after it was noted that God had given the same blessing of salvation to the Gentiles. He goes, hey, the Gentiles are believing. The Jews got mad at him about that. They wanted to kill him because of that. That was all based on a decision. He knew that was going to happen, so he wasn't making a decision on what made him feel good, but rather what God had called him to do. Every step of Paul's defense uh, and his making a defense over a period of years, Paul would up the ante of saying things to his prosecutors and to his accusers that were all but assured to give him future trouble. He never backed down. He never toned it down. There was never a compromise with what Paul said he was going to do. It was, I will preach Christ and Christ crucified. Well, tone it down a little bit. Just don't be so aggressive in the presentation of the gospel. I will preach Christ crucified. And if that brings me uh, death, so be it. If that brings other people to Christ, praise the Lord. It was always motivated by his calling, by what God had communicated to him. It was, as, it was as if Paul was orchestrating things, though, as he's doing all of this so that he could get to Rome, that he could be under Roman guard, that he could force a hearing for Christianity before the Roman em- emperor himself. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. In fact, this is exactly what one late the- uh, professor of theology taught Paul was doing. Again, a little bit longer, but listen to this particular quote. Paul's appeal to Caesar brought Christianity directly to the attention of the Roman government. Now, again, we sometimes we want to say, maybe Paul should have just flown under the radar. But Paul's taking Christianity into the very halls of the Caesar himself. Paul's appeal to Caesar brought Christianity directly to the attention of the Roman government to compel the civil authorities to pass judgment on its legality. If it was allowed as religio licita, meaning a permitted cult, the persecution of it would be regarded as illegal and its security would be assured. So that sounds good. If I can get Caesar to say, this is okay, we're all good. If, on the other hand, it was adjudged to be religio illicita, that is a forbidden cult, it ensured persecution would not... uh, then the ensuing persecution would not only advertise it and offer an opportunity for a demonstration of its power. In other words, he's saying that if, if it's said you can be Christian, then win. If he says You're, this is an illegal cult, it will bring persecution, and what happens to the church under persecution? It thrives. It thrives. Whether Paul would be executed, whether he'd be set free, it was a win-win situation for Paul, and it would be a lose-lose situation for Rome. If Rome had simply ignored Paul and sent him on his way, Christianity would have remained in, in basic obscurity. Paul's strategy would either bring greater freedom to Christianity to spread, to advance the faith, or cause greater suffering for the church at large, which he knew God would use to spread the faith. 
Some might have asked who was Paul to make such a decision for the church, but he was God's man. It was in this environment of difficult, sacrificial, painful choices and imprisonment that Paul wrote to these Philippian brothers, urging them to sacrifice themselves for one another, if you're thinking about the book, writing that his own life was nothing apart from Christ, even noting that his suffering and many sacrifices to get where he was, was for God's glory. Isn't that an interesting notion? He says, I've sacrificed a lot to get to prison, where I can actually suffer and be mistreated for the sake of Jesus and possibly cause you more suffering, but will actually lead to the furtherance of the gospel. Is he going for that peaceful, easy feeling? Not at all. It's in the midst of all of this, when Paul knew that the greatest suffering still awaited him, that then and only then does he refer to in the text that I read in Philippians 4, 7, uh, 4, 7, or 4, 9, the peace that, or 4, 7, the peace that surpasses all comprehension. What is he talking about? In fact, when Paul would go on in the same chapter to describe how do you attain that peace? How do you have this peace that passes all understanding? Is it just some abstract notion? Well, if you're in Philippians 4, look at Philippians 4, 9, and Paul describes how we have this peace that surpasses all comprehension, saying, the things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Do you want to experience peace? Well, that's kind of a weird phrase. You should just know that you have peace. And as long as you are in the word of God, practicing the precepts and principles of God, practicing these things, you know that the peace that has reconciled you to God, that Christ who has brought you near to your creator, that is yours. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free in him. What example did Paul set for the Philippian brothers? He was the example of a man who lived godly as he embraced suffering and imprisonment with both arms for the sake of the church and for the sake of Christ. He literally was bound for the sake of Christ. It's in this context that Paul writes about peace, and there can't be anything easy about that. I'm not saying you can't have an easy peace, but I'm saying Paul's not making decisions based upon whether it makes him feel good. The context where Paul intentionally chose to suffer, though he could have chosen a different path if he had wanted, but he avoided that. By chance, do you see a pattern with what is going on here? In the context, what do we learn about Paul's admonition of peace? It is a peace that surpasses all comprehension. It is not something, he says, that is given to make decisions. Where do I live? Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? What job should I keep? Do I have a peace about that? Paul didn't even use peace the peace barometer to make decisions about the persecution of the church, he simply said, what does God's word say? And I will do that because I'm already at peace with God because of Christ. Feeling good or bad about decisions, by the way, is not abnormal. I'm not saying you shouldn't have those feelings, but it does not require Paul's peace that surpasses all comprehension. 
The peace that Paul refers to is supernatural because extreme circumstances require extreme conviction. The harder your circumstances, the more you need the word of God. I mean, you always need the word of God. But when you are in question of what you think you ought to do, it's not about a feeling at that point. It's now about what, has God, what are the precepts and principles of God's word. Extreme circumstances require extreme conviction and sometimes extreme encouragement. Feeling good or non-conflicted is not peace in the biblical sense. Peace in the biblical sense is really this. It is that jaw-dropping, how does God do that sense of security from firm conviction in the face of absolutely overwhelming odds and oppositions that everything is against the Christian, everything is fighting to, to bring you down, the world, the flesh, and the devil, but God is at work. It goes right back to what we said this morning. Now to him who is able to do, uh, now to him who is able, I was thinking about a different verse, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. How does he do that? That's your peace, that God has done that for you, that God keeps you in that both uh, uh, now and forevermore. So the idea, it is, is this the idea of what the Apostle Peter had when he calmly walked to his own execution and according to tradition, what did he do? He begged to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy of his Lord. And so evidently they obliged him. But the, the whole thing is because I already know what God has done for me. I'm sure of what God has communicated to me. It is what the early martyrs experienced when they smiled at the flames uh, lit under their feet as the kindling began searing their flesh. It is what Paul experienced after he resolutely and firmly and purposefully with deep conviction set his face to go towards imprisonment and suffering and embraced it at every step of the journey until his head faced the butcher's axe and he lost his head. It is not to stand when the world demands you sit, it is conviction to stand when the world cuts off your legs and greases the floor and your conviction persuades you to stand yet still. That's the kind of peace that the Bible promises, that it doesn't matter what the world says, I know my standing with God. Now, sometimes that sense, that understanding is, is delayed. We, we wonder, how is this all going to work out? Look with me at Luke chapter 22. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 22. What's going on in Luke 22? Well, this is the night before Jesus was betrayed. He's going to be led away to be crucified. And he's in the garden. And we all know what he does in the garden. What does he do? He begins to pray. And what does he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prays to God the Father, and in verse 42, it says he prayed that to the Father to remove the cup from me, the cup of wrath, this cup of, that would bring him all of this suffering. Remove this cup from me. And yet at the same time, his resolution was set. He says those very famous words, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is in this moment. Is he trying to figure out how do I have peace in this moment? 
Does he trying to say, how do I feel good in this moment? Will it make me feel better if the cup passes? Will it make me feel better if I just do God's will? Is it about his feeling? I would ask, does Jesus have that peaceful, easy feeling at the moment of this decision to embrace the cross? And I tell you, he did not have a peaceful, easy feeling. And how do I know that? Because scripture tells me he did not have a peaceful, easy feeling. Look at the very next verse, verse 43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, that is Jesus. What does the angel do? Strengthening him. Extreme circumstances require extreme conviction. So I'm in this very difficult situation. What does God's word say? And even when I know what God's word says, sometimes I need someone to come alongside and encourage me. And when Jesus, the son of God, walking on this earth, had to face this kind of trial, he does, he's not looking for an easy out, but he makes, what does he say? Extreme circumstances, I'm about to go to the cross, require extreme conviction, not my will, yours be done, and sometimes extreme encouragement that God the Father sends an angel to strengthen Jesus in this particular moment. If Jesus needs encouragement, how much more do you and I need? Why is it that the Apostle Paul writes to the, to, to the churches, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, the Thessalonians, therefore encourage one another? Because extreme circumstances require extreme conviction and sometimes extreme encouragement. So the, the issue here, why would Jesus need strengthening? This is, this is God in the flesh. And the, and the answer is, duh, Look at verse 44. What does scripture say, right? Let's go to the next verse. And because it's even more revealing. And being, notice that it's not at peace. He's not at peace. What is he in? Being in agony. He's not feeling peace. He's in agony. And he was praying very fervently, praying so much that his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus was stressed. He stressed so greatly that it brought about, and I'll have to, to uh, confirm the pronunciation with our resident doctor, but hematohydrosis, that the way you say it, is good enough? I just fake it when, okay. Hematohydrosis, it's a condition causing blood vessels around the sweat glands to actually uh, burst, and so he is now sweating drops of blood. That's not somebody that's experiencing a good feeling. I have peace with what God has called me to do. Was this a Jesus at peace or was this rather simply a Jesus resolute in the decision he made based upon what God had revealed to him regardless of his feelings? And I say to you, it's the latter. He was suffering great mental and emotional stress in the moment knowing what was about to come. I can't even begin to imagine. I, you can... I mean, I go to the doctor for a blood test, and I'm passing out. Jesus knows he's going to the cross to be crucified. And you imagine the stress of that moment. Yet, remarkably, he embraces the cross anyway. In stark, almost violent contrast to it, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, paints the picture of this Jesus kind of peace that says, I'm going to do what God's called me to do, knowing that this is the best thing, even regardless of how it makes me feel. 
It says this, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising what? The shame. That What is that? That's not a feel-good statement. He was going to be shamed on the cross. He was going to suffer on the cross. He was going to bleed on the cross. He was going to be mocked on the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame, but now he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not embrace the suffering of the cross ever because he said, well, I got a piece about what I'm about to do. He knew it was going to cost him. He embraced the suffering of the cross. Why? Because it was God's will for him. And he was intent on doing God's will even if it did not bring peace in the moment. He knew it would bring peace for both him and those who follow him later, but not in that moment. Beloved, when you make decisions about what course your life will take, remember that peace is not designed to help you make a decision. It's rather given to you to know and have confidence of your standing and relationship to the living God. If it were the case that you were to use whether or not you had peace to make a decision, I would suggest to you that we would all run like children from suffering every time we could. We wouldn't want to do anything that would cause us distress or harm or whatever it might be. Yet also remember that the suffering of our Lord Jesus, who did not experience peace in the immediate aftermath of his decision. Instead, he set himself resolutely to go to the cross because of his conviction, because of his love for us. He knew it would be costly and painful. Peace had nothing to do with it except for the peace he was going to be making between God and men by his sacrifice. I was thinking about this and I was wondering about uh, the question, who do you admire in scripture or in history the most? Apart from the Lord Jesus, do you have a character? Is there somebody in history, somebody else in the Bible that you just admire? And if you think about that person, chances are that they are actually like Jesus in this, that they are people who endured great suffering and turmoil and either because of it or through it transformed the world around them. Just think about the people that mean anything and they were people who were willing to suffer for some better good from, for that cause. They didn't always feel good about the circumstance they were in in the moment. In contrast to the worldview that runs from suffering, that makes its decisions through things like escapism, the scriptures encourage times when we must embrace suffering. Indeed, all who desire, Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We recognize that out of it and through it, great deeds are done. We recognize that because of suffering, if we follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, lives are transformed. We recognize that heroes can be made if we would simply follow the Lord's way and the Lord's will. For there's nothing admirable about the man who embraces his personal peace at the expense of doing the right thing. Well, I mean, you don't I don't feel good about doing the right thing, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to have peace about it, and I'm not going to do anything. Well, you don't really know those people because nothing ever comes of them. In the end, the point of all of this is that we must know and do the will of God in this way. We must know the revealed word of God to us. You want to know the will of God? Read the Bible. 
If you want to experience the will of God, then understand the precepts and principles and start asking yourself after every daily Bible reading this question. What can I do based upon what I just read? How can I apply what I've just read? How was it that this character was able to trust God in their circumstance, Lord, so that when I face a similar circumstance, I can trust you in the same way? We need to understand. We must have conviction. One of the best bits of advice that I ever get, got about parenting, before Laura and I ever had children, we were at the home of one of my, my mentors, <clears throat> and uh, he said, Ed, when you see all of these parents around you doing things to and for their children, you need to examine what they're doing well and how that relates to the word of God, and you need to know what they're doing that you would say, I will never do that. He said, you need to build a conviction of how you will raise your ch children. You need to come into it as best you can, having already determined certain things so that when the questions come up, you're not trying to decide, well, what's, what makes me feel good in this moment? No, what has God said is the right thing to do to encourage, to bring up my child in the way of the Lord. Beloved, we must have conviction. And conviction is built upon knowing God's word. Conviction is not just coming to church and hearing the preacher preach a, a statement about conviction that, yeah, I like that. It's every day getting into the nitty-gritty of God's word and saying, God, what is your will for me this day based upon what I've read? And by your grace and by your power and by everything that I have in me, let me see that precept. Let me see that principle. Let me realize that conviction in my life. Everything needs conviction. We must know what God has said. We must know what God desires for us to do. We must try to anticipate as best we can. I know we are imperfect, but you should seek to, uh, to uh, anticipate any question. When you're going to go and, and have a uh, family meal with family that are maybe unbelievers at Christmas time, you should go in with conviction, not try to develop conviction on your way in, but to know here's what this is all about. And if I have this opportunity, I will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The doing of God's will will not always in the moment bring you a peaceful, easy feeling. If you are sharing the gospel with somebody who is hostile, they may ridicule you. They may cut off a relationship with you. But if they come to know the Lord, there will be peace between you and them later. But you must have the conviction that right now I must do the right thing. Our joy is that because we already have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of how we feel about things on this earth, living for Christ, suffering for Christ, even dying for Christ, we stand on this truth. We have peace with God because of Christ's work on the cross. And by the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, that is not the litmus test by which you determine whether or not your decision is the will of God. It is the knowledge that doing the will of God, whether it brings you joy or brings you pain, does affect your eternal does not affect your eternal standing with God. You are secure in Christ. I can't think of a more joyous thing than to recognize that peace with God means I have confidence with God. That peace with God means he's done everything I need for my life to be made right with him. 
I lack nothing. If God be for me, who can be against me? That's the peace of God. When you recognize that he has given you his spirit to enable you to know him, to know his word, to understand his word, that he's given you his spirit to give you that confidence that he is with you, that's peace. That's what God has given you. And so now you make decisions recognizing whether this brings me joy or brings me pain, it will not affect my standing with God. Again, does that not tie in beautifully with what we just concluded with Jude? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen. The best way, beloved, to determine the will of God is to examine carefully the word of God, not asking how do I feel about it, but rather, God, what have you told me you desire for me to do? Then, in that statement, whatever that leads you to, you keep the peace of God with you as you go through the joy or the trial, the triumph or the tragedy because he's given you that peace. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for the opportunity to consider the peace of God and the will of God. We thank you that you have revealed both to us. We thank you for the great privilege that we have peace with you. Again, not because of what we've done, but because the Prince of Peace has brought peace to us. The God of peace desires for us to live in that sphere of confidence, knowing that everything has been done to secure our salvation. Father, may that sense of peace be ours. And may that understanding of peace guide us in our decisions, not based upon what we feel, but what we know to be true of your word and what we know to be true of what you're asking us to do. Father God, thank you for... Uh, the opportunity to examine these things. I pray that you will help us to put these into practice, that we might be a faithful people who delight and live in the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that peace that will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory and the praise both now and forevermore. Amen.